In recent weeks, we've been looking at some of the stories that Jesus told during his time here on earth, memorable stories that are designed to communicate important spiritual truths. And we call these stories parables. And the parable we're going to look at today is powerful, it's pointed, and frankly, it's uncomfortable. The story is found in Luke chapter 16, beginning with verse 19. If you'd like to follow along in one of the Pew Bibles, you can on page 1594, page 1594, but there are also going to be the words on the screen. It begins in verse 19 when Jesus, uh, or when it says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came in and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus at his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses or the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus tells this story in two acts. Act one is here and now and takes place around the home of a very rich man. Act two takes place sometime later at the dividing line between heaven and hell. And by the end of the story, we'll see that Jesus has a lesson for us from each of these two acts. Act one begins with the words, there was a rich man. And then Jesus describes a man devoted to luxury, wearing the finest clothes, eating the best of food, served daily in his opulent mansion. Not bad, right? Except that all anyone can say about him is that he was rich. If you open any newspaper and you turn to the obituary page, you'll find that a well-written obituary is able to capture the essence of a person in a single sentence. So you'll have something like a beloved father of three, or a loyal friend and selfless civic leader. But with this man, the only thing that anyone can say is that he was rich. That was his whole life. How empty. But that isn't the worst thing that we know about this man because it's not what he does, but what he doesn't do that ultimately casts him in such harsh light. And in particular, it's his relationship, or rather lack thereof, with a man who lived perhaps for years just outside the front gate of his mansion. Jesus tells us that this man's name was Lazarus. By the way, this is the only parable in the Bible that uses a person's name. 
And it's an interesting name because it comes from a Hebrew word that means God is my helper. And in many ways, it's an apt name, considering how the story ends. But in Act 1, the part of the story that we're looking at now, the here and now of this world, it's darkly ironic. Because during his time here on earth, no one helped Lazarus. Certainly not our rich friend. But I love the fact that Jesus gives him a name. This small detail gives dignity to a person in the way that Jesus tells this story that went unnoticed throughout his life. But even naming him gives him dignity. Lazarus spent his days lying outside this rich man's gate. And I take the word lie here to mean that he was disabled, possibly crippled. He also had a severe skin disease and was so poor that he lived by begging for table scraps tossed from the rich man's table. And if that wasn't bad enough, just read the disturbing detail at the end, the part about the dogs who licked his sores. You couldn't have picked two people any further apart on any social scale. And they knew it, or at least Lazarus knew it, because it's not clear, to him, clear from the story that the rich man at this point even noticed Lazarus. To him, he was invisible, and he never lifted a finger to help him. That's Act 1. It's short. But then Jesus shifts to Act 2 of the story. By now, both men have died. In fact, uh, the one fact that we know that remains true today, that was true then, is that none of us get off this planet alive, and the rich man and Lazarus were no exceptions. Jesus mentions Lazarus first. It's not clear from the story whether there was even a funeral for Lazarus here on earth, but he certainly had a spectacular welcome into heaven. It says the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And then we're told the rich man also died and was buried. And it's here that the story begins to pick up steam. The rich man finds himself in Hades, which simply means the place of the dead. And he finds himself at what he soon understand, understands is the wrong side of the divide. So the place of the dead, Jesus says, is separated into two halves. One half is the place of eternal joy, and the other a place of torment. The listeners of Jesus' story would have immediately understood the storyline because there are several other ancient versions of this story that have, a, have similarities, including a story from Egypt. These stories have plot lines that center around rectifying the inequities we find here on life in an afterlife. So the idea is that a wicked rich man and a pious poor man trade places in the afterlife. So think of the movie Trading Places, where you've got Eddie Murphy playing Lazarus and you've got Dan Aykroyd playing the rich man. Now, if that were the case, if the story were told in that way, the message would be, life is unfair. Don't worry. God will even things out in the end. Except, as we'll see, that's not what Jesus does with this story. Instead, he adds an unexpected twist that reflects a completely different set of values than those embedded in some of these other ancient stories. But at the beginning, the story does resemble that ancient pattern. After death, the roles of these two men are reversed. So the rich man who once lived in luxury is now in misery, and Lazarus, once poor, is seated next to Abraham in the great banquet hall in the sky. Tormented and racked with thirst, the rich man makes a request. Could Lazarus bring him a drop of water to cool his tongue? Now, there's deliberate irony here in the story. As long as he lived, he didn't seem to notice who Lazarus even was, except that he did. He did know him, and he even knew his name. He saw him, but he ignored him. He didn't do anything while he was here on earth to help him out, and now his throat parched. He asks Lazarus to come and give him a drink. 
Unfortunately, old attitudes die hard. And even in his request, it still seems true that he views Lazarus as his lackey, someone who ought to do his bidding. Well, it's not Lazarus who answers this man. It's Abraham. He says, while you lived on earth, you had the best of everything, and Lazarus had nothing. But now it's too late. There's nothing that can be done for you. And then Abraham explains there's this great chasm between the two of them, a chasm that cannot be crossed from either side. And with that, he shuts the door on this rich man's hope, hope for relief, his hope for a second chance to make the right decision. Stunned, the rich man isn't quite sure what to say, but then he makes a second request. If you cannot do anything for me, would you send Lazarus to my brothers? Maybe they will not make the same mistake that I've made. But again, Abraham turns him down. This is the twist in the plot line that would have surprised the listeners of Jesus' story because other similar stories included warnings from the grave, kind of like Scrooge in A Christmas Carol who receives these messengers from the other side. But in this story, there's no extra special revelation. Instead, he tells the rich man, they've already been warned, it's in their Bibles, and if they won't listen to what they already have, they won't listen to Lazarus either. Then one final time, this man appeals to Abraham. He says, please, if someone from the dead goes back to talk to them, they will listen and repent. Abraham says, no, they won't. If they don't believe the scriptures, they will not believe a ghost. What Abraham says here is true even today. Those who won't listen to the evidence that God gives them here and now, those who live in open defiance of him will not change just because they see a miracle. Miracles will not convince those whose hearts are hardened against him. They will not be persuaded. That's the story. So what do we do? What are the lessons that we can find out of this story? And as I said at the beginning, I believe Jesus has a lesson for us from each act of this story. Lessons that flow out of the two opportunities that this man had that he failed to take advantage of. Our rich man's motto was, you only go around once in life, so grab for all the gusto that you can. And he did. And in the process, it never occurred to him that he had the opportunity to do what he could to help poor Lazarus. So we need to do the opposite. Use what we have to care for others. This man saw Lazarus every day with his eyes, but not with his heart. He saw him suffer, but he felt no pity. His sin wasn't that he did anything wrong, but that he did nothing at all. Why? Because he didn't care. Now, I'm sure he had his excuses. I'm sure he looked at Lazarus and said, ah, it's his fault. Or why don't you just get a job? Maybe he said that under his breath as he walked past. Or he thought, if I give him money, he'll just go buy beer. But he should have known better. There's this detail that Jesus includes in the second half of the story, the detail about Moses and the prophets. That's more than just a reference to the Hebrew Bible. He was getting at something more specific. And what he was getting at is that the Old Testament instructed the rich to care for the poor. Let me give you one example, and there are many. This one's from Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 7 and 8. It says, If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and lend freely to them whatever they need. So when Jesus has Abraham say, they have Moses and the prophets, he's rebuking this man and he's rebuking his brothers for neglecting the poor, for their disregard for God's will. 
Now, I said earlier, Jesus didn't make this story about a great reversal. The idea that when things go wrong in this life, they'll be evened out in the next, even though that's probably true. If he had, we would be content with the idea that if someone is suffering here on this life, well, God will make it up to them in the next. Again, that may well be, but Jesus is not letting this rich man or us off the hook. Off the hook for our lack of concern and care for those here and now around us. Jesus also didn't make smug remarks about the curses of riches or the blessings of poverty. Yes, the rich are more tempted to self-sufficiency and to callous disregard for the poor. But the poor face their own temptations. With hardship that Lazarus faced, he could well have grown bitter and cursed God, but he didn't. Instead, he trusted God, believing, as his name suggests, that God would be his helper. It's not the rich man's wealth that sent him to hell any more than it was the poor man's poverty that put him in heaven. Instead, it's the choices that each of them made here and now that led to where they ended up. And we, too, have our own opportunities. The lesson for us here is that we will one day be accountable with whatever opportunities we have. And if it's within our power to fix something that's broken in this world, we're to fix it. For many, if not most of us, the most difficult thing to let go of is our money. But we also have other assets as well. We may have intellectual gifts. We may come from healthy families, which means we're emotionally stable and we can help others. We may have the skill to fix things or make things or create things, and these are all gifts we can use to bless others. We need, though, to look at what's going on around us, to see the poor, especially the material poor, and do something for them. There always will be inequities, and our job's not to flatten everything out, although we should make it flatter. But we must never be complacent when anyone in this world, whether here or anywhere else, suffers. We cannot and should not be indifferent to extreme poverty, to racial injustice, to environmental devastation, to the plight of the unborn, the sick, the immigrant, and the elderly. The rich man in this story bought whatever he wanted. He indulged whatever he fancied, and he never gave a moment's thought to how he might answer for how he'd spent what God had given him, and he should have known better. Wealth then and wealth today buys us a great deal, including the ability to isolate ourselves from the disadvantaged. We cannot let this happen because when it does, it's hard for us to be concerned. We need to intentionally put ourselves in contact with people who don't have enough to eat, who lack quality health care, who don't have jobs that provide enough for their needs, people without access to good schools, quality parks, and safe streets. In Act 1 of this story, the rich man's mistake was his failure, his lack of concern for fellow human beings, people he could have helped if he had just looked around. But it wasn't his only failure. He also did not prepare well for eternity. Act two of this story takes place in the afterlife, at the dividing line between heaven and hell. But I do believe it would be a mistake for us to see this as a guide to the geography of the afterlife. The details here are not meant to be literal, but a figurative way of describing the glories of heaven and the misery of hell. One of the ways that Jesus changed this traditional story is that he did not allow the rich man to send a message to his brothers. Many of the other stories do that. So why did Jesus have Abraham refused? Well, he says the reason is, is that the brothers already have the information that they need. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced. So the point that Jesus is making is that our lives lived here and now need to be lived with eternity in view. The rich man's failure was to not use the wealth of knowledge that he had from the law and the prophets to prepare for eternity. And so it was only after it was too late 
that he grasped and reconsidered what he had once ignored, that the decisions made in this life have eternal consequences. And so he found himself utterly separated from God, disconnected from the love, peace, joy, and meaning and hope that comes in a relationship with God. Now, when Jesus told this story, he was speaking to people just like us who live in act one of the story, in the here and now. We, like the rich man and his brothers, have choices. But the time for making those choices will run out. The mercy of God is endless, but it is not offered indefinitely. God extends his offer to, of grace to each one of us, but if not accepted now, one day it will be too late. Now, I know that some of you are exploring Christian faith, and we celebrate that. That's great. And I know that you have important questions that you need answered now and perhaps even in the immediate future. So I don't want you to feel pressured. We want to walk with you and be in a conversation with you about those important questions. But know also that one day you will need to make a choice. It's been my personal experience and the experience of others that you'll never have all the answers to all the questions that you may have. I don't and you won't. But I believe you can have enough of what you need to be able to make a decision to follow Jesus. So consider taking a leap of faith. Not blind faith, but informed faith. Choose to follow Jesus. It's an opportunity available to you now, but it will not last forever. How we choose matters, eternally matters. In some of the stories that Jesus tells, he includes a detail that invites us, draws us into the story personally. Often it's a loose end that remains unresolved, a question about what happened next that gets us to thinking about how it all ends and makes us think about how we fit into the story. The end of the story that we've just read includes just such a loose end. And the question is what, we're left to think, happened to that rich man's five brothers? Were they just like him and lived out the rest of their days and in selfish indulgence? Or did they eventually listen to Moses and the prophets and make changes in their lives? Did they care for the poor and disabled around them, the widow and the orphan, the sick and the oppressed? And did they reflect on their eternal destiny? In the end, we can wonder all we want, and we don't know. And I think that's the way Jesus wanted the story to end, because he wanted us to consider not just whether the brothers ever got woke, but whether we are humble enough to consider how we might avoid the errors of this rich man. You know, we're not going to get a messenger from beyond the grave because we too have Moses and the prophets and so much more. The heavens are not going to open and give us a sign that we can't ignore because God has given us all we need to live the life that pleases him and to properly prepare ourselves for eternity. The key to all of this is the man who told the story, Jesus. The one who not long ago, not long after this story, died for our sins and their sins who rose again from the dead so convincingly that his disciples and nearly 500 others believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that he had risen from the dead and put their faith in him, preparing themselves for an eternity with God. On our 10th anniversary, Kathy and I went to a jeweler, and the plan was to transform her wedding ring into something that commemorated our first 10 years of marriage. And I took along not only her wedding ring, but a wedding ring that I'd received from my grandmother upon her death. Grandmother's wedding ring had a, a larger diamond in the center, which we turned into a pendant, and then it had six smaller diamonds that surrounded that diamond, and we wanted those included in an outer band for that ring that we were working with the jeweler to craft. A few weeks later, we went back to pick up that ring, and when the jeweler took the ring out of the box, we noticed something different, because there were not six small stones in that outer band, 
but ten. Those six small stones had multiplied into ten. One, the jeweler told us, for each year of our marriage. And she refused to take any money for those extra stones. She said they were a gift. Sometime later, I was talking with a friend about my experience, and he knew the jeweler. And when I finished the story, he said, I'm not surprised. She's like that. And then he told me a story that far exceeded our little loaves and fishes diamond story. A few years earlier, the jeweler received a call from a woman with a Chinese accent, and the woman told her that she had some family jewelry that she hoped to sell and wanted to see what it was all worth. So the next day, the woman came in, and they began to talk about the items. But then the jeweler said, I have a question. She said, why do you want to sell these? And the woman said, I need the money. It was a personal question. It was a bit of a risk, but it was something that she felt prompted to ask. She learned that the woman had come to Minnesota not long before to enroll in a Ph.D. program at the University of Minnesota, but her funding had been delayed, and it looked like it would be delayed for months. And because of that, she couldn't pay the fees that she needed to enroll in the classes that she needed to begin the program. And if she couldn't do that, she'd have to wait a whole other year. She didn't have the money to stay that, many, that long in the United States. And so she desperately needed the money by the end of the week. And so here she was with this jewelry, no one to help her, and she wondered if this woman might be able to help her. Looking at the jewelry, which included, by the way, the young woman's engagement ring, the jeweler knew that she couldn't buy these items. They were beautiful. She knew she could easily sell them, but she felt strongly that these items needed to remain with this woman. So she took a breath and said, I'm sorry, I can't buy these. They belong to you. But here's what I can do. She said, I can write you a check so that you can pay for your schooling, take your classes, get your PhD, and if you're able to pay me back, great, but if you can't, go home and make your life count. The young woman looked at her stunned. She started to cry. She said, why would you do that for me? And the jeweler said, for two reasons. She said, years ago, I was able to buy this business. But I needed money. And a man who believed in me came to me and gave me a check for $10,000. He told me to take it to the bank and to secure financing to buy the business. And he told me, if you can't pay me back, don't worry about it. I believe in you. She said, I was so humbled that anyone would do something like that for me that I told God that if I ever had the opportunity to help someone else, I would. And then she said, the second reason is this. The greatest gift I ever received was when I understood for the first time what Jesus did for me, that he died on the cross for my sins, for everyone's sins, and then rose from the dead so that I can spend an eternity with him. There's no greater gift than that. The jeweler then wrote a check for this young woman's schooling, um, and I'm told five months later, the woman was able to pay her back, and they've stayed in touch ever since. The story that Jesus told was about opportunities missed, the opportunity to help a desperate man and the opportunity to prepare now for eternity. There's both a warning here and a promise, a warning not to miss the opportunities that we have to do good and to prepare for eternity, and a promise that if we listen to the voice of God and seize the opportunities that God puts in our path, then and to put our faith in the one who indeed rose from the dead, then we can reverse the trajectory of this story and write a different ending for ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we have opportunities every day to help others. We can't do everything, but we can do something. So as much as we may want to do, and it may paralyze us because we can't help everyone, 
Help us look around and ask what it is that you would have us do today. At the same time, Father, may we keep eternity in view, not live simply for joy and pleasure in this present life, but live for the life to come, making the decisions that you intend for us to make, to be followers of you, to put our faith in Jesus. We pray this in his name.